the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Tuesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. Today we're going to talk with Melissa Spolstra. She's the author of Total Christmas Makeover, 31 Devotions to Celebrate with Purpose. I think most of us want to do that. She doesn't suggest that you jettison all of your uh, traditions, but that you enhance them by thinking about uh, the occasion and inserting some things that may not have occurred to you. We're going to talk with her about that. Devotional that not only covers the uh, the Advent, but it also um, drifts over into the start of the new year and preparing for a new beginning there as well. So looking forward to talking with her. Also, we'll be giving away our um, next pair of CDs in our Christmas Jubilee two CD pack giveaway. And of course, they're performing in uh, Salem at Salem Baptist Church on Friday night at seven. And uh, let's see, we're giving away um, two pack, uh, two CD pack featuring the Booth Brothers, Greater Vision and Legacy five. Um, and that will be in the five o'clock hour, just giving you a heads up. But that's coming up. On today's program, as well as well, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. Well, the Senate, we're told, is close to voting uh, to pass a tax bill. We're talking about tax reform that the Senate has been grappling with. And there's a lot of uh, ifs still pending there. But Senate Republicans advanced their tax reform plan in a key committee vote today as the president confidently predicted passage after visiting Capitol Hill in a bid to win support from GOP holdouts. Uh, The president told reporters, I think we're going to get it passed. Now, he's predicted that with other pieces of legislation that were not passed. So eh, the work still has to be done. The Senate Budget Committee um, moments earlier voted 12 to 11 to advance the plan to the full Senate, paving the way for a possible floor vote later this week. Some are predicting that will be on Thursday. The momentum driving our shared priorities of job growth, economic competitiveness and fiscal responsibility through tax reform is undeniable. White House Press Secretary Sarah Sanders Huckabee said in a statement today, earlier in the day, Trump joined fellow Republicans at their weekly Senate luncheon to talk taxes. He described the meeting as phenomenal and somewhat of a love fest. Those are in quotes. Uh, President Trump needs nearly all 52 Republicans to help pass the reform legislation with a simple 51 vote majority. However, there are, as expected, a handful of GOP senators still undecided, including Senator uh, Susan Collins of Maine, Bob Corker of Tennessee, Jeff Flake, John McCain of Arizona, Ron Johnson of Wisconsin, Rand Paul of Kentucky, and most recently, Steve Daines of Montana. But both Corker and Johnson backed the legislation in the committee vote Today, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, he didn't talk about what was uh, discussed in the Trump meeting, but addressed the effort to round up votes. It's a challenging exercise, he said. I think of sitting there with a Rubik's Cube and trying to get 50 votes, the Kentucky Republican uh, said, comparing uh, the challenge of herding cats to um, to uh, getting the votes. Several sticking points have emerged since the Senate began working on its uh, version of the early fall, or rather in the early fall, keeping in mind that the House has already passed their version, the latest being whether small businesses will get their uh, fair share of tax relief. 
Senators uh, such as Johnson and Danes went lower, want rather lower taxes for the small business, including so-called pass-through entities. These are companies whose profits go to the owners who report the income on their individual tax returns. We need to take care of Main Street business, Danes said. Smaller states tend to have more Main Street businesses. However, fiscal hawks like Corker and Flake, they're raising concerns about whether more um, more cuts and miscalculations about already proposed cuts will add to the federal deficit and the federal debt. One analysis projects the entire GOP plan will increase the federal deficit by $1.4 trillion over the next 10 years. Corker and others want the GOP plan to include a trigger or backstop that could revamp or reverse tax cuts if they don't spur the projected economic growth or if they increase the deficit beyond projections. We're working on that right now, Corker said uh, this morning on Fox and Friends. Um, hopefully it's uh, it's going to be successful. Well, Collins, Corker, Danes, Johnson said on Monday that they talked with Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin. Uh, earlier concerns among GOP senators included whether the corporate tax rate will drop from 35 percent to 20 percent and if middle class Americans would still get to deduct their state and local taxes. The House earlier this fall passed their tax reform bill. If the Senate passes its version, GOP lawmakers from the respective chambers would meet to negotiate a compromise plan, which the president would sign for his first major legislative victory since taking office Almost a year ago, no Democrats thus far have uh, supported the GOP plan. None are expected to. The president has also been scheduled, had been scheduled rather, uh, to hold a White House meeting with the top bipartisan congressional leaders covering negotiations over a temporary spending bill and other issues to keep the government open. However, House Democratic Leader Nancy Pelosi and Senate Democratic Leader Chuck Schumer pulled out after the president tweeted that there might not be a deal with them. Meeting with Chuck and Nancy today about keeping government open and working, he tweeted earlier today. Problem is they want illegal immigrants flooding into our country country unchecked, are weak on crime, and want to substantially raise taxes, I don't see a deal. Not exactly the best invitation to meet and talk. Some Democrats want the budget uh, measure to include legislative protections for young illegal immigrants known as DREAMers, with uh, opposition to the idea from conservative Republicans. Well, uh, President Trump uh, hasn't engaged much with Pelosi and Schumer since a September meeting, and that produced an agreement on a short-term increase in the government's so-called debt limit and a temporary spending bill that is now keeping the government running, but won't for much longer. McConnell and House Speaker Paul Ryan were still attending the White House meeting uh, with uh, Trump and did. I've never refused to go to a bipartisan meeting that the president has called, Mitch McConnell said, after Trump left Capitol Hill. Schumer and Pelosi issued a joint statement saying that they will uh, try to negotiate the spending bill and other end-of-year issues alone with GOP congressional leaders declining to meet with the president at his invitation. Well, as I mentioned, there are some holdouts. Senator Steve Daines of Montana, um, uh, Representative Susan Collins of Maine, Bob Corker, a Republican out of uh, Tennessee, Jeff Flake, who is from Arizona, along with John McCain, also from Arizona, Senators, uh, Senator rather James Langford, a Republican out of Oklahoma, uh, Jerry Moran, a Republican out of Kansas, uh, Lisa Murkowski uh, from Alaska, Marco Rubio, uh, also from Florida, has been an advocate for an increase in the child tax credit and is maybe holding out for more on that. But these are the individuals to watch in this back and forth in the Senate as they attempt to meet their deadline of passing something, having it on the president's desk and um, passing this major piece of legislation before the end of the year. We'll see what uh, 
what happens. Well, in other news, in a victory for the uh, Trump White House, a temporary restraining order to halt the president's pick for acting director of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, Mike Mulvaney, was denied by a judge this afternoon. Judge Timothy Kelly ruled in favor of the president in his effort to appoint White House Budget Director Mulvaney to lead the bureau, the nation's top financial watchdog agency. A lawsuit was filed Sunday night by the federal official appointed to lead the bureau by the outgoing director, Richard Cordray, against the president and Mulvaney. Well, the suit requested a uh, declaratory judgment and a temporary restraining order to block Mulvaney from taking over the agency. Well, the leadership of the bureau has been thrown into chaos over the weekend after Cordray resigned and appointed English as his successor. Both Mulvaney and English claim to be the rightful acting director. However, the judge's temporary restraining order uh, to stop Trump's uh, or decision not to uphold the temporary restraining order to stop Trump's pick for a uh, uh, leader having been denied. Um, that action will not stand. 16 minutes after four o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 21 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up later this program, this hour, in fact, Melissa Spolstra will be my guest. She's the author of Total Christmas Makeover, 31 Devotions to Celebrate with Purpose, a great resource to kind of walk us through day by day so we don't get caught up in what can so easily distract us during this season. Well, White House budget boss Mike, or rather Mick Mulvaney, moved quickly on Monday to rein in the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. He imposed a 30-day hiring freeze and other new rules as the fight over who's really in charge of the agency headed to court. Well, as I mentioned earlier, a judge has resolved that issue, at least for the time being. Well, Mulvaney, whom President Trump chose to run the the um, agency on the temporary basis, has a history of bashing the bureau and has called it sad, sick joke, referring to uh, its function. He didn't back away from those uh, assertions Monday afternoon, describing the CFPB as an awful example of a bureaucracy that has gone wrong and is almost entirely unaccountable. Mulvaney said he was surprised at the unchecked powers afforded to the Bureau, including his. I am just finding out about the powers I have as acting director, and they would frighten most of you, he said. It's frightening to think about how little oversight Congress has over me now as I am the director, and by implication, those who preceded him. He said he wasn't there to shut the place down, but announced a swift a set of of changes uh, late Monday afternoon, including the hiring freeze, as well as a freeze on any new agency guidelines in the pipeline and on payments out of a um, civil penalty fund for 30 days. This agency will stay open. Rumors that I'm uh, going to set the place on fire or blow it up or lock the doors are completely false, he went on to say. I am a member of the executive branch of government. We intend to execute the laws of the United States. Well, Mulvaney said that he will spend three days a week at the uh, agency. Since my name is on the door, I want to uh, to be there, to be here, he said. The White House insisted Mulvaney is firmly in control of the agency despite a court challenge, which has now been resolved. Director Mulvaney has taken charge of that agency, and he has the uh, cooperation of the staff and appeared there Monday morning as well as Tuesday, and things went very well. White House Press Secretary Sarah Sanders um, uh, said on Monday afternoon, adding that Director Mulvaney is the right person at this time to head this watchdog agency. Mulvaney took over the agency on Monday morning, firing off a memo instructing staff to disregard 
directives from English, who had just been appointed by the outgoing former director. It has come to my attention that Ms. English has reached out to many of you this morning via email in an attempt to exercise certain duties of the acting director. This is unfortunate, but in the atmosphere of the day, probably not unexpected, he wrote. Please disregard any instructions you receive from Ms. English in her presumed capacity as acting director. If you receive additional communications from her today in any form related to related in any way to the function of her actual or presumed official duties, i.e. not personal, please inform the general counsel immediately. Well, Reuters, which first obtained the memo, reported that He sent it uh, after English sent an email welcoming staff back from her Thanksgiving holiday and signed off as acting director. She has now uh, had sued the White House over uh, Trump's decision to put Mulvaney in charge. But as I mentioned earlier, a federal judge has, in fact, rejected uh, that lawsuit requesting a temporary restraining order uh, to stop the president from making that appointment. Well, the FBI apparently neglected to notify nearly 80 U.S. officials that their personal Gmail accounts were the targets of Russian hacking attempts. That, according to the Associated Press, reporting on Sunday, of the 190 affected officials and groups and to which AP reached out, nearly 80 granted the outlet interviews. And although the FBI had been gathering evidence and knew for at least a year that the Americans were victims of a hacking scheme, The Bureau apparently failed to inform the victims of the threat posed to them. And after interviewing nearly 80 parties that had been uh, targeted, AP found that the FBI had alerted only two of them before any hacked emails or information could be released. And while some of the hackers uh, victims never heard from the FBI at all, others heard from the Bureau only after their emails and information were leaked publicly. It's utterly confounding, says a former senior director of the National Security Council, Philip Reiner. Uh, You've got to tell your people, you've got to protect your people, he went on to say. Well, the Russian cyber espionage group at the center of the hacking efforts, unofficially referred to as Fancy Bear, of all things, is thought to be connected to the Russian military intelligence agency, GRU. Uh, Fancy Bear is the same group that's been linked to the 2016 email phishing operation directed at the Democratic National Committee. The DNC reportedly refused to allow the FBI to inspect its compromised servers, however. In response to inquiries by the AP about why it chose not to inform the U.S. officials of their vulnerability, the FBI provided a statement saying the FBI routinely notifies individuals and organizations of potential threat information. It was no longer a potential. It was an actual threat. So I suppose that didn't count. A senior FBI official who was not authorized to speak publicly and discuss the hacking operation because of its sensitivity declined to comment on when it received the target list, but said that the bureau was overwhelmed by the sheer number of attempted hacks. The FBI official in question told AP it's a matter of uh, triaging to the best of our ability the volume of the targets who are out there, which I suppose highlights the vulnerability that all of us are exposed to within new technology and efforts by those with nefarious motives to access our accounts and information. Uh, Meanwhile, as um, more and more individuals' names are being brought forth as having um, perpetrated uh, sexual and other forms of abuse, Tucker Carlson on his program Yesterday made the point that sex abuse stories have dominated the news for the past six weeks, beginning with the Harvey Weinstein predators in Hollywood. The media politics have been exposed and they've been and they've been uh, punished. And that is good news because justice is always good news. And we'll continue to bring you up uh, updates on those stories as we get them. And we're sure we will. 
But going forward, we should also be careful, he went on to say, that the noble effort and uh, to end sexual harassment does not denigrate into a witch hunt. It can happen, as Washington Post uh, just proved. And he went on to suggest that it happened to him. So with that in mind, two things to remember, he wrote, or actually said. First, and this accusations always lead to abuses. The right to face your accusers is the cornerstone of justice and has been since ancient Rome. That's why it's enshrined in the Sixth Amendment in the Constitution. That's why we ban star chambers. We don't allow people to accuse others of armed robbery or murder from behind a shield of anonymity. Uh, who do media outlets allow it, it um, or why do media outlets allow it in uh, cases of sexual harassment? He went on to ask, if you're going to name the accused, you ought to name the accuser, assuming it's an adult. News organizations are not courts. They shouldn't take the side um, when guilt and innocence are in dispute. It's too easy to get it wrong, and they often do. Second, not everyone accused of sex um, offenses is guilty. Not every accuser is telling the truth. I learned this the hard way, he went on to say, a number of years ago when I was accused of felony rape by a woman I had literally never even seen. If you're going to name the accused, you ought to name the accuser. He goes on to talk about the fact that she... Uh, described in some great detail this alleged um, encounter that she had with him. It was later proved to have been false, and he didn't go into detail as to what her motive might have been or what ultimately happened. But he did uh, conclude by saying everyone accused of sex offense did something wrong. Everybody knows that, and if I knew no one would believe otherwise. This isn't a defense of sexual harassment or misbehavior, obviously. It's just a reminder that real life is complicated, more complicated than sermonizing on Twitter. Sometimes the mob is wrong. Sometimes the innocent are crushed. Uh, That's always a tragedy, no matter what the charge is. Of course, crushing the innocent also may be the point of the exercise, and we are are seeing that. Last week, a feminist called Emily Lindt announced on Twitter that she was uh, not at all concerned about innocent men losing their jobs in the search for perpetrators of sexual harassment. If some innocent men's reputations have to take a hit in the process of undoing the patriarchy, that is a price I'm obviously willing to pay. Well, it's not a price that she would be paying. Truth um, and and uh, uh, getting to the bottom of uh, actual details is most important. But as he points out, for some, this is a witch hunt and who's caught in the crossfire uh, is of little importance as long as uh, a greater good is accomplished. But not all people tell the truth in these um, these situations. It was really very compelling. And I think you can actually hear his commentary on Fox News um, on their website, foxnews.com. 31 minutes after four o'clock. Up next, we're going to talk about. A total Christmas makeover, 31 devotions to celebrate with purpose. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 37 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. And a reminder, we're going to be giving away the Christmas Jubilee 2 CD pack uh, later in the 5 o'clock hour. So listen up for your opportunity to win. Well, in the hustle and bustle of the Christmas season, which has just begun, it can be easy to get swept up in all the things to do, decorating and cooking, socializing, shopping. However, it's important to pause and remember the priority should be to spend time celebrating Christ's birth and not forgetting to invite Jesus to his own party. Well, in Total Christmas Makeover, 31 Devotions to Celebrate with Purpose, my next guest, Melissa Spolstra, she provides a practical approach for helping families learn what it means to truly celebrate the Savior. A total Christmas makeover doesn't mean scrapping all your holiday traditions or adding 10 more to your 
your list. Instead, it's a personal time of reflection to evaluate how your Christmas practices align with some biblical concepts of celebration. Uh, She explains that Passover, festivals, and feasts were instituted by God to help his people remember who he is and what he has done. And while we have no such specifics given for our celebration of Christ's birth, because it comes from church history rather than biblical mandate, we can glean some important principles about celebration from Scripture. And she provides a resource to do just that. Well, Melissa Spolstra is a... uh, a popular women's conference speaker. She's a Bible teacher and writer who is madly in love with Jesus and passionate about helping women of all ages to see Christ and know him more intimately through serious Bible study. She has a deep abiding passion for studying God's word and teaching others to do the same. Uh, she is the author of several Bible studies, including Numbers, Learning uh, Contentment in a Culture of More, First Corinthians, Living uh, living love when we disagree, Joseph, the journey to forgiveness, and Jeremiah, daring to hope in an unstable world. She's also the author of two books, Total Christmas Makeover, that we're going to be talking about here today, and the Total Family Makeover, Eight Steps to Making Disciples at Home. We're delighted to talk with her at the early stages of our uh, merrymaking as we anticipate uh, celebrating the birth of Christ. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Now, this is a very busy time, and it may seem a bit overwhelming to imagine even picking up a book to uh, to spend some time in devotions and contemplating what it is that we're really um, all about when we're celebrating the birth of Christ. Is there time enough for people to spend time in devotion uh, in this very busy season, and how do you do it? I sure hope so. I mean, it's, this is we're celebrating the birth of our Savior, Jesus Christ, and what a way to say happy birthday, Jesus. I'm too busy for you. Can you imagine <laughs> if it was your birthday and all your friends were like, I can't come, you know? And so um, I think it's just of great importance for us to take that time to set apart. And really, these devotional readings take between five and ten minutes a day. And if we think of what we spend five and ten minutes doing, waiting in line for a coffee or... Um, you know, watching our favorite show or, or many other things that we're doing. You know, how can we say we're too busy to spend some time with the Savior we're celebrating? So I think, and we need those times of reflection and, and to kind of realign ourselves with what it's all really about. Yeah, absolutely, because it's easy to forget. Now, you make the point that uh, the celebration of Christ's birth comes from church history or tradition rather than biblical mandate, like some of the festivals and celebrations we find in Scripture. Is it important for us uh, to acknowledge and celebrate Christ's birth? And what's the the, the primary um, benefit that we derive from stopping to remember uh, God's promise fulfilled? I think it just, God's heart and pattern is taking time to celebrate And we see through the Old Testament, you know, that he had marked moments saying, you know, when I think of Passover, eat this, you know, bitter herbs to remember the bitterness of slavery and eat the unleavened bread to remember that, you know, God saved you before the bread could even rise. And so he knows that we are prone to forget and that we need these special times, holidays, holy days that we set aside to remember who he is and what he's done. And so, again, you know, the Christmas thing, there's a lot of liberty. You know, Passover, you have to follow some really mm-hmm. strict guidelines that God laid out. There's a lot of liberty, but I see just that biblical pattern to say, you know, in the Old Testament, we see rituals, relationships, and rest being the priority when it came to holy days, to holidays. And so how can we take kind of those concepts that God had in place with biblical celebration, and then how can we carry those over 
to how we celebrate Christmas. And, and I do think it's important to take some time, set aside, you know, Easter, we celebrate the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ. And at Christmas, we celebrate that you know, God stepped into time and put on flesh and came for us a big deal. Yeah, it's a good thing always to remember. Now, some of us really thrive uh, during the holiday seasons, season. rather. Others of us uh, really dread it. Now, part of that has to do with some of the uh, uh, the practices that uh, the culture kind of imposes on us and we impose on mm-hmm. ourselves. But what factors differentiate between the enthusiast and those who really would rather skip the holidays altogether? Well, I mean, I know this year is a, will be a first Christmas for many who've lost a loved one. And so that's going to be hard for them because it's, all of it is going to be marked with, you know, that loss or um, for those who are battling cancer or other diseases, you know, the holidays are a time um, to pause and reflect on all that they're going through and what's going on. So I understand for those who, um, you know, are having a tough time and we need to walk with each other through those difficult seasons. But I think if we're finding ourselves jaded or cynical, and I've been there myself, when the to-dos of Christmas outweigh the joy of the Savior, that's when we need to take a step back and go, hmm, why is all of this feeling like a chore? And what, you know, there's kind of three questions I always say we need to ask when it comes to these Christmas rituals. Why am I doing this? How does it honor Christ? And how does this impact my family? And if it's, you know, when as we reflect and take that time to say those things, you know, that might get to the root of what you're talking about when we're maybe not as enthusiastic about it and dealing with some of those underlying issues. And then some of us love it and, and love to go all out and celebrate. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with that either. It, we have a God that went all out. As long as we do the heart check and say, what's our motive? What's our heart behind our, what we're doing? Now, what is a total Christmas makeover? Well, and like I said, it's not scrapping all the things you used to do and adding a ton more to it. Instead, it's this evaluation of your posture and your heart. It's taking that time to step back and say, what what are the rituals we do around Christmas? And I'm not saying every single one of them has to be hyper-spiritual. Mm-hmm. I mean, one of our favorites is hiding the stockings. And, you know, I read... I see God loving a good party in the celebration. Jesus, much of his ministry, yes, it was in the synagogue, but many times it was in homes and celebrations. We saw him at many different festivals, um, you know, sharing the message in those contexts. And so nothing wrong with um, having a good party and, and celebrating and doing that. It's just the Christmas makeover is saying, what are the rituals we're doing? Are they becoming more of a burden than a joy? And then how are we valuing people? Because we see that in, in biblical celebration. Relationships are the focus. And I know being a task-oriented person, Christmas tends to add more to my overflowing already to-do list. And so I have to be very intentional to see people and to think about people. And, you know, I kind of use this phrase, be a there-you-are kind of person rather than a here-I-am kind of person. Meaning that as we walk into these holiday gatherings, whether they're with extended family, whether with coworkers, whether they're with people at church, you know, you can walk in and rather than be overwhelmed by all your Christmas stress, can walk in and really try to see what are they going through and what's going through in their lives and what kind of questions can I ask them. And that extends beyond just our sphere, but what about you know, our, our postal workers or our children's teachers? Christmas is a great opportunity for us to th- take stock 
of the people in our lives and to be grateful for them and to bless them in mm-hmm. some way, whether it's with a note or a, a, a word of encouragement or whether it's a special gift, um, we can do that. Absolutely. We're Those talking people. about the uh, book Total Christmas Makeover. We need to take a quick break, but we'll be back in a moment. Melissa Spolstra is my guest, and you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 52 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Continuing my conversation with Melissa Spolstra. She is a popular women's conference speaker, Bible teacher, and writer who is uh, madly in love with Jesus and passionate about helping women of all ages to seek Christ and know Him more intimately through serious Bible study. We're talking about her book, Total Christmas Makeover, 31 Devotions to Celebrate with Purpose, and uh, uh, encouraging all of us to... Uh, take a few moments every day at least and just reflect on what it is we're doing, why, and whether or not we've uh, invited Jesus to the uh, to the party. Well, let me ask you about um, how your approach to Christmas has changed um, over these last five to ten years since you've really reflected on uh, the things that are tradition for your family and how to make Christ at the center of those practices. Yeah, I would just say that it's been a posture change for me. Um, Not necessarily that I've just scrapped everything. I mean, we still do lots of Christmas rituals and traditions that we enjoy. But I think before there were some that I just felt like I had to do, or they felt like a chore, or I'd get on Pinterest or social media and see what everybody else is doing and feel like, oh, we should be doing more or comparing myself with what other people were doing. And instead, uh, taking time to rest and reflect and spend more time with the Savior and celebrating. And so I would say over the years, you know, there are some things I've let go with no guilt or shame. I mean, I used to every year feel like I had to send that Christmas card out. We had to get our family together and get the right picture and get all the addresses. And, you know, I just found myself up late one night, tired, exhausted, writing down addresses going, this is not life-giving for me. And for some others, it is. And that's the thing when I say there's a lot of freedom here to do certain things that others maybe don't do. Um, for us, some changes have come in our family just because our kids have gotten older. You know, when our kids were young, we did something called the Jesse Tree, which was devotions mm-hmm. each night. You know, we gathered as a family almost every night, and we unwrapped a little ornament, did a reading from Scripture, and put it on the tree. And if we missed a night, we'd do two ornaments in one night. But that was for 25 days. Well, now that my kids are in high school and college, I mean, there's no way we're all together. There's no more 8 o'clock bedtime, you know. They're sometimes out working at their, they work at Chick-fil-A later than I'm even awake. So this concept of having everybody home for a nightly devotion just wasn't working anymore. But at the same time, we want to be intentional about making Christ the center of this. So instead, uh, for the last few years, We've just had each kid pick a topic surrounding Christmas that they have to present a devotion on. So each week, one child is presenting a family devotion on a Christmas-related topic. So they have to spend some time doing a little bit of research. They have to use an object lesson or a game or a craft or something, and they kind of try to outdo each other a little bit. So um, they have a lot of fun with it. So we've changed to a weekly uh, family reading and devotion around Christmas rather than daily, you know, other than during the holiday itself. So we've definitely, you know, just had to transition. And I think that's what we constantly have to do as our families grow and change and flex. But no matter what's going on in our families, we want to be intentional about talking about Christ and reading about Christ and thinking about Christ during this season. 
Now, you, um, as we mentioned earlier, you look to the um, celebrations and festivals that we find in Scripture. You did a study in the book of uh, Numbers, and you noticed that there were three elements that were included in the festivals. And Let's talk about how that is a part of how you structure um, Total Christmas Makeover to help us think perhaps more deeply about how we engage in this celebration. Absolutely. So the first 10 devotions for the first 10 days are on rituals. Um, so you're going to look at even things like cooking, taste and see that the Lord is good, decorating, singing, uh, gathering for social things, uh, gift giving, how we can look at all those and rediscover the wonder and the heart behind them and what that looks like practically for us. So right at the beginning, those first 10 days of December, the next 10 days are all about relationships, about people, thinking about the people you appreciate, thinking about the least of these and how we can be generous and and prayerful for those who are in need during this season. And then the last 10, 11, actually, uh, devotions as you transition past Christmas into thinking about the new year are actually about rest. And I think that's the most foreign concept that, for me, in applying from biblical celebration, every time God was serious, he said, stop your ordinary work to focus on me and and whatever we're remembering. You know, for Passover, we're remembering the deliverance out of Egypt. For Purim, we're remembering that God saved the Jewish people under Esther. You know, whatever it is, and for us, it's remembering that Christ came to earth and, and was born and, and lived and taught and showed us the way. And so but to rest is just, I've never stumbled upon rest. I don't know if you ever have. Mm-hmm. It doesn't usually just happen magically in my life. It's something I have to be very intentional about, because when God talks about stopping ordinary work, I think we live in the most challenging time in history for stopping ordinary work. I mean, my emails are coming through my phone and buzzing, and we're available 24-7. My kids can't even imagine a time when you didn't have a cell phone and you just couldn't be gotten a hold of. You know, there was that used to be a thing, (laughs) and now it's not. I mean, you're available, and so work, you know, whatever that looks like for us, uh, bleeds over into into everything. So some ideas for resting during the holidays would be things like as you schedule holiday parties or when you're going to shop or when you're going to decorate, maybe scheduling in some guilt-free hours that you're going to rest. Not necessarily watch more TV, but you're going to listen to God. You're going to write in your journal. You're going to read some scripture. You're going to maybe just take a nap, and you're going to bring restoration to your soul. It is a gift from God, rest. And it's one I know I struggle to open and embrace. And uh, then at the same time, I think another idea would be to consider putting away phones for a certain amount of time. And, and I have three teenagers. It's not it's not popular around the house that on Sundays here we put phones away um, until 5 p.m. And so we all just, just to rest from notifications, to rest from everyone else, to focus on God and each other. So I know at youth group we have a bowl that everybody puts their phone in as they come into our Bible study, and I thought, you know, maybe at our Christmas we might consider, at least, you know, maybe maybe just for a few hours, hey, let's everybody, including parents and grandparents, put all of our devices aside and just be fully present so that we can rest in each other's presence. Well, it's a wonderful notification. A wonderful devotional, and I should mention that in addition to taking us through the Christmas holiday, you also include preparation for the coming 
coming new year. Again, the book is titled Total Christmas Makeover, 31 Devotions to Celebrate with Purpose. Melissa Spolstra, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate, appreciate the opportunity. By the way, the book is uh, published by Abingdon Press and is available. I would encourage you to get a hold of it right away and start working your way through these 31 devotionals. You've got news and traffic coming up at the top of the hour. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, welcome to the second hour of The Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. Well, as promised, every day this week, we're going to be giving away a pair of CDs, the Christmas Jubilee 2 CD pack featuring the Booth Brothers, Greater Vision, and Legacy 5. Um, You can also see them perform live in the uh, Christmas Jubilee Tour that's coming to Salem First Baptist Church, 7 o'clock p.m. uh, this Friday night. Uh, And you can get more information about that and also purchase your tickets at kpdq.com. I look for the banner at the top of the page. It's kind of a scrolling banner, and you'll find it there. But right now, we'd love to give a Christmas Jubilee 2-CD pack to caller number 3, and the number to call, 1-800-845-2162, 800-845-2162. And again, we're talking about a 2-CD pack featuring the, the Booth Brothers, Greater Vision, and Legacy 5, the Christmas Jubilee CD pack. So... Looking forward to that and a great concert coming up on Friday at Salem First Baptist Church. Well, the Supreme Court's final sitting of 2017 begins this week, and the justices are going to hear oral arguments in a number of high-profile cases involving the Fourth Amendment, free speech, and religious liberty, federalism, and property rights. Well, a few of them, beginning with property rights of patent holders on the 27th, which was yesterday, the Supreme Court heard Oil States Energy Services, LLC, rather, versus Greens Energy Group, LLC. And while that's not all that important to most of us, it's a case involving the federal government's ability to review the validity of a patent through an administrative proceeding known as um, uh, inter-parties review rather than the federal court. So you wouldn't have the benefit of the court making a decision. You would have this other review um, a process. Well, Oil States Energy Services patented a particular technique to increase the longevity of wellheads used in hydraulic fracking. And later they filed a patent infringement suit against another oil company, Green's Energy Company. And while the suit was pending, Green's Energy Group asked the Federal Patent Trial and Appeals Board to... Um, uh, for inter-parties review of the patent. Well, under that process, the government can decide to invalidate an existing patent, which is precisely what happened to oil states' patent. And, of course, if you were the one who uh, had filed for the patent, you developed the thing in particular, you would uh, certainly want a higher authority to make those decisions. Well, the U.S. Supreme Court is going to, uh, or rather heard arguments, and is going to rule on this case before uh, probably sometime this summer, uh, but heard oral arguments uh, earlier this week. And then tomorrow, the court's going to consider a case involving the Fourth Amendment's prohibition on unreasonable searches and seizures as they relate to emerging technology. And it seems the courts are always lagging behind in this area. Carpenter versus United States concerns whether it's uh, constitutional for the government to seize cell phone location records from service providers without a warrant. The Stored Communications Act allowed law enforcement officers to acquire these records directly from service providers like Verizon, AT&T, and others after obtaining a warrant or a court order, the latter under a lower standard of proof. Well, Timothy Carpenter is challenging his conviction for six robberies, which were proved in part by the police seizing his cell phone location records. 
Well, the lower court held that information shared with third parties receives no Fourth Amendment protection under the so-called third-party doctrine. But other courts have concluded that the doctrine doesn't apply, given the sensitivity of these records and the fact that, at least in a meaningful way, people don't give up this information voluntarily. Well, the outcome of this case could have significant consequences for law enforcement, as well as anyone with a cell phone. Now, if you happen to be the perpetrator, this is this would be good news if they say no You cannot acquire this information without a warrant. If you are the victim of a perpetrator, you might find uh, that this makes it much more difficult to prove a case against a perpetrator. So we'll see what the um, Supreme Court has to say. And again, that case is going to be heard on the 29th, which is uh, is tomorrow. Yeah, that's tomorrow. Then there's uh, a case uh, regarding sports betting in New Jersey. On December 4th, the court's going to consider a case involving New Jersey's effort to legalize sports betting. Now, this is in New Jersey. In 2012, the voters there overwhelmingly approved a constitutional amendment legalizing sports betting at casinos and racetracks. But a federal law got in the way. The Professional and Amateur Sports Protection Act bars states from repealing existing prohibitions against sports betting. Well, the National Collegiate Athletic Association and other sports leagues challenged New Jersey's amendment, saying it violated that law. Well, in Christie, the governor, of course, versus NC2A, the Supreme Court's going to consider whether this law violates the anti-commandeering doctrine as recognized in a previous case that holds that under the 10th Amendment, Congress does not have the authority to commandeer states into the service of the federal government. Well, New Jersey argues that if this law is permissible, the federal government could interfere with state sovereignty to regulate the private conduct of their own citizens, intervening in states' decisions whether or not to legalize concealed carrying of guns, working on Sundays and uh, or recreational use of marijuana. So this is a case they're going to uh, hear on the 4th of December. The following uh, day is one that I know many in the Christian community are very interested in learning more about. On December the 5th, the court's going to hear arguments in one of the most anticipated cases of the term, Masterpiece Cake Shop versus Colorado Civil Rights Commission. Now, this cake deals, or case rather, deals with whether Colorado can force a baker to design uh, specialty cakes with messages that violate his or her religious beliefs. Now, in this case, we're talking about a hymn. Jack Phillips, the owner of Masterpiece Cake Shop, declined to design a cake for a same-sex couple's um, wedding, although he offered to sell them a pre-made cake. The couple uh, filed a complaint with the state Civil Rights Commission, which resulted in a finding that Phillips engaged in sexual orientation discrimination in violation of the state's public accommodation law. Well, Phillips, the baker, argues that forcing him to create these messages violates his free speech and free exercise rights under the First Amendment. And the Colorado Civil Rights Commission says that Phillips may not uh, be exempt from the public accommodation law. Well, the court's decision in this case will affect dozens of similar cases pending across the country that involve businesses involved in the wedding industry. And as I mentioned, there are four such cases. The Supreme Court has has, uh, agreed to hear this one uh, with the understanding that their decision in this case will have an impact on the other three. Uh, As I mentioned, there are only four of the big cases coming up to the Supreme Court, with many more to be argued in the late winter and spring. Uh, So stay tuned for um, some blockbuster decisions in 2018, and we'll certainly follow those stories um, as they develop. Meanwhile, North Korea fired an intercontinental ballistic missile, an ICBM, around 1.30 p.m. Eastern time on Tuesday, about 3.30 um, a.m. 
uh, local time, the first such launch from the rogue regime in more than two months, according to U.S. officials. The missile, believed to be an ICBM by the Pentagon based on initial assessments, was launched from uh, North Korea and uh, flew roughly 620 miles before landing in the Sea of Japan, about 50 minutes South Korea's uh, news agency, which first reported the launch, said the missile launch happened around 3 a.m. local time in North Korea. South Korea fired pinpoint missiles into nearby waters to make sure North Korea understands it can be taken under fire by the South. Uh, the Defense Secretary Jim Mattis said of the uh, situation, well, North Korea has been working hard to perfect reentry technology uh, to one day have a warhead to be able to survive reentry into Earth's atmosphere. This ICBM would be able to hit any city within the U.S. if a warhead was able to survive reentry. So this is uh, the longest, uh, in this case, the highest uh, missile that uh, certainly does pose a greater danger than we've seen to date. It was determined by the North American Aerospace Defense Command, or NORAD, that the missile did not pose a threat to North America, our territories, or our allies. Um, uh, said uh, Robert Manning the third. Uh, Manning, in an earlier statement, said, "We are in the process of assessing the situation, and we will be providing additional details when available." Well, the ICBM flew nearly 2,800 miles into space, according to the South Korean news agency. NASA's International Space Station only orbits the Earth from 250 miles, so that gives you some perspective. 2,800 miles versus the space station, 250 miles uh, into space. From the Earth's surface, North Korea has now test launched three ICBMs in its history. The launch on Tuesday flew a thousand miles higher than the regime's first launch on the 4th of July. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 22 minutes after five o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show brought to you in part today by Zero Res. I mentioned that uh, North Korea launched another missile. This is the 24th this year. To put it into perspective, there were 21 last year. President Trump says he's going to put Kim Jong-un's hermit kingdom on the U.S. list of state sponsors of terrorism. The move uh, should have happened years ago. He said he uh, uh, was sorry that it hadn't already been done. But the move sends North Korea's uh, regime, as Trump calls it, murderous regime, uh, an unambiguous signal. The U.S.'s tolerance of its escalating acts of aggression against its neighbors and the U.S. is at an end. The diplomatic game of patty cake is over. Now, what uh, comes in its place is not altogether clear. Uh, efforts to uh, encourage the Chinese to use whatever leverage they might have have been less than successful. But the listing of North Korea as a state sponsor of terrorism isn't a toothless act. It automatically triggers a host of sanctions, including restrictions on U.S. foreign assistance, a ban on defense exports and sales, certain controls over exports of dual-use uh, items, and miscellaneous financial and other restrictions. That's according to the State Department. And North Korea joined some bad company on this list, Iran, Sudan, and Syria, all states that uh, sponsor support terrorism in one form or another. Yet, as of now, North Korea has surged to the fore as one of the biggest terrorist threats out there. Just um, today, as I mentioned, there was a launch, and on Monday, South Korea's top spy agency, the National Intelligence Service, said its uh, communist next-door neighbor was preparing to ramp up that long-range missile, which... Uh, 
came to pass today. Well, the NIS said there is a possibility that they could fire an array of ballistic missiles this year under the name of a satellite launch and peaceful development of space, but in fact, to ratchet up its threats against the United States. Well, Kim Jong-un's totalitarian regime has redoubled its efforts in recent months to create a nuclear weapon that can be delivered via intercontinental ballistic missile as far as the U.S., even though those efforts violate U.N. Security Council sanctions already in place. It's tested two missiles by firing them over Japan, appears to be gaining in its acquisition of the relevant technology necessary to someday menace the U.S. as well. And today's launch certainly was an example of that. North Korea and Iran, by the way, have colluded in their nuclear efforts with technicians and engineering teams from both countries sharing data, visiting facilities in both countries. The Trump administration sees this as a joint threat, as U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley said in October And I quote, leaving the Iran nuclear deal unchanged since Kim Jong-un, an unmistakable message that the United States can be bought with a bad deal that does not end the threat of its nuclear missile program, a deal just like the Iran deal. Well, the fact is the U.S. is... A long history of appeasement of North Korea's bad behavior from the president's uh, first president Bush to President Clinton to the second president Bush to President Obama. Each time the U.S. has made concessions and increased aid and each time North Korea's behavior grew worse. This has had predictable results. Last week, foreign policy analyst Michael Rubin of the American Enterprise Institute noted that influential leaders in Iran have started to question the value of the Iran nuclear agreement, given the U.S.'s inability to stop North Korea from doing what it wants. Rubin said some Iranian hardliners close to Khomeini asked themselves why Iran should be constrained by a nuclear agreement when North Korea, the country with a small population and weaker economy, managed to defy the West. In response, President Trump has now started drawing a line in the sand, indicating North Korea's years of acting out are coming to an end. Again, not clear what that might mean. And maybe by cracking down on North Korea, ratcheting up the pain through sanctions, a message will be sent to Iran as well. The days of appeasement are over, and so are the days of U.S. weakness. Uh, But again, um, given the response we've seen thus far in China, it's not altogether clear where this will all lead. So if you are struggling with what to pray about, well, be sure to keep that in mind. We talk a lot about Kim Jong-un and the impact he is having on the on the world in terms of uh, sowing instability. But I was struck by uh, a disclosure on the coast of Japan recently that that reminds us of not just the leader of North Korea, but the people who are suffering under his leadership. A skeleton-filled ghost ship carrying the remains of eight ill-fated seafarers washed ashore on Japan's North Korean-facing coast, according to the Japanese Coast Guard. This was on Monday. This is days after the body of a suspected North Korean man and parts of another wrecked wooden craft were discovered on a Japanese island. The grisly find could be evidence of desperate defectors trying a new route to freedom after um, a despot King uh, uh, Kim Jong-un has clamped down on those fleeing the hermit kingdom this year. A Japanese resident spotted a 22-foot wooden boat on Friday floating um, on a beach in uh, Japan along the Sea of Japan. Uh, The Times reported officials searched the vessel Sunday and Monday and found several of the remains were skeletonized. So it had apparently been there for a while or been at sea, indicating a long period had elapsed before it was washed ashore. The remains were so severely decomposed, it was hard to decipher if they were men or women. The 68 year old woman who initially spotted the boat told the um, local news she saw rescue workers carrying skeletal remains using stretchers. 
Um, it was uh, surprising to see a boat in such bad condition. She uh, went on to say the discovery has puzzled Japanese officials who found no clues that indicate the ship's origin. The Coast Guard said the boat may have come from North Korea, according to the local news. The gruesome discovery follows a series of bizarre findings within the last week, including that of a man's body on uh, Sado Island located off the coast of Japan's northwestern uh, prefecture of um, the uh, the area and uh, wooden boat parts. The Coast Guard official said, according to Reuters, the body was found uh, on Saturday and it is believed to be from North Korea after they found Korean letters written uh, near the body. The Coast Guard also found a pack of cigarettes and other personal belongings with Korean letters scrawled on them near the body. An official said it's still unclear how that individual died, but it does point to the desperation that so many in that country are facing trying to escape uh, the ravages of a leader who is obsessed with a nuclear program while at the same time starving and depriving his own people. We're going to take a break here in a moment, but when we come back, we'll talk about uh, Planned Parenthood in a deep uh, situation with the law, deep trouble. This could be a, a turning point. Also, a lawsuit has been filed by a former employee. What this might mean is not altogether clear, but for the first time, Planned Parenthood is being held to account for some of his activities that appear, at least on its face, and with the members of Congress and now the FBI investigating, or at least uh, thought to be investigating Planned Parenthood and its associates for the sale of aborted baby body parts uh, for profit. Uh, this may um, be a turning point in the organization that has enjoyed uh, broad public support for many, many years. We'll get into that and more. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 36 minutes after 5 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Marjorie Dannenfelser points out that we're living through a remarkable time in history. Well, that certainly is true on so many levels, but this may represent a turning point with regard to Planned Parenthood. Almost daily, those in influential positions who once appeared untouchable are falling out of popular favor as their abuses are exposed, of course, some more than others. Earlier this month, one particular institution was dealt back-to-back blows, Planned Parenthood, the nation's largest abortion provider. On November 13th, The Hill reported that the FBI may be investigating Planned Parenthood and its associates for the sale of aborted babies' body parts for profit. It's the latest development yet in a scandal that began way back in 2015 with the release of explosive undercover videos. Now, those videos showed abortion industry executives haggling over the price of hearts, livers, brains, kidneys, and describing in chilling detail their techniques for crushing late-term babies to get the freshest organs. The Senate Judiciary Committee and the House Select Investigative Panel on Infant Lives spent almost one and a half years conducting a national investigation, reviewing 30,000 pages of documents and hearing hours of testimony. They found enough evidence to refer several Planned Parenthood affiliates and tissue procurement companies for potential prosecution. Attorney General Jeff Sessions suggested that if the FBI concurs, charges might be filed. Then came the second punch. Just as news of the FBI inquiry broke, the 8th U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals declined to revisit its ruling that the state of Arkansas can re, uh, redirect Medicaid funds away from abortion businesses like Planned Parenthood, which the state is completely justified in doing considering the ongoing baby parts scandal. Well, these two major breakthroughs would have been inconceivable under the previous administration. 
administration, which repeatedly abused federal power to prop up the abortion industry. President Obama aggressively and his aggressive pro-abortion administration put the bully in bully pulpit. Under uh, Obama, the Justice Department became a tool to harass and intimidate pro-life advocates, labeling them domestic terrorists alongside groups like the Ku Klux Klan. Instead of investigating Planned Parenthood for the shocking, potentially illegal practices exposed in the videos, pro-abortion attorney General Loretta Lynch decided to investigate the whistleblowers. The Obama administration also interfered with state efforts to defund Planned Parenthood. Kansas, Tennessee, Indiana, Texas, New Hampshire, New Jersey, North Carolina, all these states tried to get taxpayers out of the abortion industry, only to have the federal government bypass local officials to directly award lucrative contracts to Planned Parenthood or threatened to withhold federal Medicaid funds unless they kept tax dollars flowing. As one last parting gift during Obama's last, uh, his final weeks, his administration issued an order banning states from defunding Planned Parenthood under Title X, which took effect two days before President Trump's inauguration. Through it all, Obama's court appointees uh, have generally been reliable backers of abortion. One appointee even compared an abortion to a tonsillectomy, in a recent case that would have created new rights to abortion on demand for illegal immigrants. But there's a new sheriff in Washington, and a, a palpable sense of terror is gripping Planned Parenthood and its camp. Without their defender-in-chief or the courts to bail them out, they are finally being held accountable, or at least one hopes so. Trump is busily set about undoing his predecessor's uh, pro-abortion legacy. He's filled his cabinet with pro-life officials. He has filled court vacancies with outstanding judges like Neil Gorsuch, who faithfully interpret the Constitution. Right away, he signed uh, legislation rolling back the uh, a parting gift from the previous administration to the abortion industry, something that, on a personal note, um, uh, was uh, a major setback. Trump's strong commitments to pro-life policies has helped embolden state governors and legislators. Texas has now applied to reclaim the federal funding it was denied under the last administration. South Carolina Governor Henry McMaster in August successfully defunded Planned Parenthood there and requested a waiver from the Trump administration so that the state can do the same with Medicaid, which is where the abortion business gets most of its taxpayer funding. The next step is for the administration to issue new guidance to the states, restoring their freedom to prioritize Medicaid funds the way they believe is uh, uh, in the best interest of their citizens. The administration has to be prepared to defend that policy vigorously should the case go to the Supreme Court, which it most likely would. The pro-life majorities in both houses of Congress should also fulfill their promise to redirect half a billion dollars in annual taxpayer funding away from Planned Parenthood using budget reconciliation where they have the best chance of succeeding. Sometimes justice is a long time coming, but as two of our nation's greatest thinkers, Thomas Jefferson and Martin Luther King Jr. pointed out, it cannot sleep forever, and the arc of the moral universe bends toward justice. Let's hope that's true in this case. It certainly is if you look at the um, the great universal arc. There are good reasons to hope that uh, for America's abortion giant, justice is right around the corner. We'll see if, in fact, that will be the case. By the way, a little-known whistleblower lawsuit accuses uh, Planned Parenthood clinics in Iowa of wrongly siphoning millions of American taxpayer dollars with a series of complicated billing schemes aimed at increasing profits. Among other dishonest practices, a former manager of the clinic clinic alleges 
uh, that Planned Parenthood staffers routinely purchase birth control pills for just under three dollars, billed Medicaid for thirty five for the same package of pills and got reimbursed twenty six at a profit of twenty or twenty three dollars. The lawsuit brought by Sue Thayer, a 17 year old employee of Planned Parenthood in Iowa, coincides with a national scandal over undercover videos that showed the organization's officials in other states talking about the sale of baby body parts from aborted uh, children. The series of videos uh, disputed by Planned Parenthood and Federation of America triggered that renewed effort uh, by conservative lawmakers. Well, in her suit, this 17-year-old Thayer alleges multiple accounts of fraud, waste, and abuse in the Iowa clinics that added up to nearly $28 million. Her allegations raise both ethical and legal questions at a time when the National Planned Parenthood Organization faces a hostile climate in Washington and beyond. From April of 91 to December of 2008, Thayer managed Planned Parenthood's clinics in Storm Lake, Iowa from 1993 to 97. She also was center manager of the clinic in Lamars, Iowa. The two locations since have been consolidated into Planned Parenthood of the Heartland. Well, Thayer says she was fired at the end of 2008 after raising concerns about webcam abortions, a controversial practice that allows Planned Parenthood doctors to dispense abortion-inducing pills to clients remotely using video conferencing equipment. Well, Planned Parenthood of the Heartland, these two that have been combined, calls Thayer a disgruntled former employee in an email uh, to the Daily Signal. It said, we deny those allegations and have no other statement to make on that case. Well, Thayer maintains she's anything but disgruntled. She continues to move forward with her lawsuit, and she testified before Congress in October about her experience inside the nation's largest abortion provider. I really feel like as a taxpayer, as a mom, as a lover of life, it's my job to try to shed light on what goes on in there, Thayer told the Daily Signal in an exclusive interview. I know they're not being honest. By privately negotiating a deal with the ortho tri Cycling Low, a birth control prescription manufactured uh, by Janssen Pharmaceuticals, Thayer said the Iowa clinics were able to purchase birth control pills for $2.89 per 28-day cycle. In late October, um, both the Planned Parenthood and the pharmaceutical company were uh, emailed to confirm these numbers, but neither has responded for reasons one can imagine. Thayer then said uh, Planned Parenthood of the Heartland would bill Medicaid $35 for each birth control package and be reimbursed, as I mentioned, the 26. Medicaid is a government-run health care program. It provides free services to low-income families and individuals. And when a patient on Medicaid seeks treatment at one of Planned Parenthood's more than 600 locations, the organization then bills Medicaid on that patient's behalf. Medicaid programs use what are called open fee schedules to set compensation levels for prescriptions like birth control. And according to Iowa Medicaid's current open fee uh, schedule, providers like Planned Parenthood are allowed to be compensated $25.36 for each package of contraceptives uh, or $0.92 a pill, regardless, uh, in this case, of what they actually cost. Um, Again, this is a lawsuit that uh, is little known but is working its way uh, through the courts. Again, uh, Sue Thayer, a 17-year uh, employee of Planned Parenthood in Iowa, uh, and this coincides with the other national scandal uh, embroiled around the uh, organization. Well, students at Oregon State University received an urgent email over the holiday weekend warning the school's uh, ongoing outbreak of meningococcal disease had spread once again. They're offering vaccinations to students and, in fact, will withhold grades if students do not have the vaccination. So if you have students, sons or daughters, grandchildren at OSU, you might want to check that out. This is the fifth student to be treated 
for meningococcal uh, disease in the past year. Uh, Three is considered an outbreak, so it is a very serious situation and has the potential to have very serious side effects. 46 minutes after 5, we'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Well, I thought this was an interesting story. Apparently, they have uh, now revealed the age of Christ's tomb. They... um, took some mortar that was used in the complex that dates back to the Roman era, the first uh, Christian emperor suggesting it really is or might be where Jesus was buried and ultimately resurrected. Now, this is one of two sites that are uh, identified as the location, but uh, according to the Daily Mail, believers say it's the tomb where Jesus was buried and rose to heaven. I've been to both places, the uh, the uh, cathedral as well as the uh, the outdoor uh, location, But now they say for the first time, experts appear to have confirmed at least one element of the narrative of that history. Researchers uh, sampled mortar taken from between the original limestone surface of the burial bed, uh, where religious followers say that Christ was laid to rest and a marble slab that covers it. They believe the marble dates to around 345 A.D., which ties into historical accounts that the first Christian Roman emperor, Constantine, ordered the tomb to be enshrined in a new church. Well, Constantine took this decision after his envoys discovered the tomb beneath an older temple dedicated to the uh, goddess Venus in around 326 A.D. Now, just to put this into um, context, it doesn't really matter where that exact physical location uh, might be. There are two credible sites that one could point to as likely um, uh, locations, but it could be to the left here or to the right there. There are reasons why one might seem more credible than the other. What does matter is that the historic events surrounding the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus uh, are true. But the discovery was made by researchers from the National Technical University of Athens. They work to restore the um, Edicule Shrine, which houses the tomb at Jerusalem's Church of the Holy Sepulchre. Uh, Experts took samples of mortar from various locations within that uh, location back in 2016 with results uh, at first reported by National Geographic only now becoming made public. Well, the earliest architectural evidence found in and around the tomb complex until now dates to the era of the Crusades. Now, this would make it no older than a thousand years, aligning with the church's total destruction and subsequent rebuilding in 1009 A.D. But the Athens team uh, dating suggests that the uh, Edicule is much older uh, in uh, in terms of its structure, speaking to National Geographic, Antonia Moropaulplau, or something very similar to that, who directed the Edicule restoration project, said, It's interesting how these uh, mortars not only provide evidence for the earliest shrine on the site, but also confirm the historical construction sequence of the Edicule. And again, we're talking about the, the location uh, that tradition says uh, Jesus was buried. When the first uh, Holy Roman Emperor, and by the way, was resurrected, when the first Roman uh, Emperor uh, Constantine sent representatives to the church to Jerusalem to locate the tomb in around 325 AD, they were directed by people in the region to a Roman temple built some 200 years previously. Uh, this was destroyed and the tomb was discovered beneath, carved into a limestone cave. Well, Constantine ordered that the interior of the tomb be revealed and the edicule uh, be built around it. Well, the tomb itself features a long shelf or burial bed, which Christian tradition says is where Jesus was laid to rest following the crucifixion. Now, this is surrounded by a marble covering thought to have been installed at a much later date, potentially as late as 1555 
A.D. But when the marble cladding was opened in October of last year during the restoration work of the Edicule, an older slab of marble was found uh, resting on top of the original limestone surface of the burial bed. And that mortar was tested. It was taken from beneath the limestone surface and the slab of marble on top of it, which is uh, marked with a cross cut. Uh, into it. Well, experts determined that the older marble was installed around the 4th century AD, lending credence to the timeline of events in Christian tradition. Well, does this prove that the tomb belonged to Jesus? Well, probably not. It is impossible to tell from dating methods alone. Uh, whether the tomb contained the body of uh, the Jewish man known as Jesus of Nazareth. The presence of the burial bed does, does fit with the funeral traditions of wealthy Jews in Jerusalem during the first century. And the New Testament places the death of Jesus around 30 to 33 A.D. This new dating of the mortar does tie with the uh, tie in rather with Christian accounts of the discovery of the tomb by representatives of the first Holy Roman Emperor Constantine. And mortar found between the burial bed and the marble slab covering um, being aged at uh, age rather to the fourth century matches up with this timeline. It is just an interesting bit of um, of information to be pondered, but certainly not to hang one's hopes and faith on. Scientists also dated the surrounding limestone tomb using two brick samples taken from the structure. Mortar samples from uh, remains of the cave, uh, the the southern wall of it, were dated at three thirty five. And 1570 A.D., so it clearly was uh, constructed and then built uh, upon. Researchers used a technique known as optically stimulated luminescence to make their findings, and the method allows scientists to date ancient stone by measuring when sediment was uh, most recently exposed to light. So just an interesting uh, discovery about one of the locations thought to have been where Jesus uh, was laid after his crucifixion and from which he was resurrected. Well, tomorrow on the program, we're going to talk with Johnny Moore. Johnny Moore is the author of The Martyr's Oath, Living for the Jesus They're Willing to Die For. Now, it's not a book about becoming a martyr, but looking at those who were martyred for the faith and then calling those of us uh, who are living to do so uh, and to have the same resolve and commitment that they were willing to die for. So that's coming up tomorrow on the program. Then on Thursday, we'll talk with um, Ryan Lokesmo. Uh, He is the author of Paul and His Team, of course, a reference to the Apostle Paul, what the early church can teach us about leadership and influence. And we're always looking to Scripture to teach us a number of uh, things, primarily about who Jesus was and is and the work that he has done uh, in and through and for us. But we're going to focus in our conversation on Thursday on Paul and his team and what the early church can teach us specifically in the area of leadership and influence. And then on Friday, uh, we're going to lighten up and have a bit of holiday fun. So we're looking forward to that. Just a reminder, um, reminder there are a number of events uh, to attend over the next several days. Uh, on Friday in Salem, you have an opportunity to hear the uh, Christmas Jubilee uh, team that includes the Booth Brothers, Greater Vision, and Legacy 5. They're going to be performing the Christmas Jubilee 2017 tour on Friday, December 1st, 7 o'clock p.m. at Salem First Baptist Church. And as always, you can go to kpdq.com for more information and to buy your tickets. Just look at the uh, look for the banner at the top of the page. It's scrolling, so look for Christmas Jubilee 2017 tour. And again, that's coming up 7 o'clock p.m. this Friday at Salem First Baptist Church. And the Portland Singing Christmas Tree will resume its mini performances. That will uh, resume on Thursday night. So you have Thursday night, 730 
Friday night at 7.30, two performances on Saturday, the first at 2 o'clock, the second at 7 o'clock, and then on Sunday at noon. So if you've yet to uh, purchase your tickets, let me encourage you to do that. As the season is uh, going to be winding to a close with the noon performance on Sunday being the final opportunity for you to enjoy Portland's Singing Christmas Tree. And oh, what a what a presentation that is. So make note of those two opportunities. Well, I want to thank Clark Hilton for engineering today's program, James Blend for producing, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. And a reminder that we're going to continue to give away Christmas Jubilee two CD packs featuring the Booth Brothers, Greater Vision, and Legacy 5. We'll resume that tomorrow and the remainder of the week. So listen up for your opportunity to win this special Christmas Jubilee two-CD pack. Have a good night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.